Well, this morning we're in Malachi chapter 3. And uh, at the end of the year here, we've just been working through the book of Malachi. It's a short book with four chapters written sometime between 460 and 400 B.C. by the prophet Malachi, uh, whom the book is, is named after. We've been working our way passage by passage, verse by verse, and here we are at Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. And I think it really gives us a great theme for today. It's the theme of giving. And when we think about Christmas, uh, I think that should be a word that rises up in our hearts. The thought of giving, because we've been given so much. So let's think about it together as I read Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. When I finish verse 12, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Follow along, please, as I read Malachi 3, beginning in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then look into God's word together. Father, we give thanks that you're not just someone who says give, but you have given. We revel in the gracious gift of Jesus this season. The one who was rich became poor so that we in our poverty might become rich because of him. So we give thanks this morning in Jesus' name, amen. By the time we get to Malachi chapter three, we discover that the post-exilic people of Israel had not abandoned God altogether. You've been following with us through this book and you realize that they were just distant. So, so they, didn't, they didn't get rid of God. They were just distant and disenfranchised people. You probably remember from early chapters, they were still bringing sacrifices, even if they were lame or diseased animals. They were still participating in temple offerings, even if their cast-off wives were weeping outside the temple doors. 
The priests were still showing up to teach, even if true instruction was not on their lips, even though their lessons were causing people to stumble. That's what we find in chapters 1, chapter 2, and the beginning of chapter 3. The people didn't ditch God. They just weren't really committed to him. The relationship was more like an unhappy marriage than a divorce. They went through the motions mechanically. They maintained the bare minimum. They kept up the external facade. But God didn't really have their hearts. They weren't close to the Lord. Their affections were not set on him. I think if you looked closely at their lives, you could probably tell. Because the fact is, they gave the Lord as little as possible. It's almost as if they went up and hit the no tip button for God. No tip. Nothing more. They preferred to keep all of their resources for themselves. So when we look at the Israelites in our text this morning in Malachi chapter 3, we see their token gifts, their meager contributions, but I think we discover something that perhaps all of us struggle with. And that is, we have a keeping problem. We like to keep our stuff. We secretly prefer filling over emptying, getting over give, giving, hoarding over sharing. Now, when I say that, you may not want to accept that assertion, but come on. Have you had to buy a gift for an office party you didn't even want to attend? And you grumbled <laughs> in the giving. Have you ever been assigned Weird Uncle Al for the family gift exchange. Some of you don't have a weird Uncle Al, but if you did, you'd know what I mean. I mean, you're, you're frustrated. You don't even like the guy. And here you have to buy a gift for him. I think we all have a bit of this selfish keeping problem. So what is it that you clutch to hold on to? What is it that you grasp in order to get Maybe it's time, attention, affirmation. Perhaps it's entertainment, adventure, pleasure. Those are the things you go after. Those are the things you want to have. Those are the things you want to keep. Maybe it's money and possessions. You go after it and get it. You clutch it and keep it. Once you have it, you protect it. In the words of Gandalf the Grey, you keep it secret. You keep it safe. What is it that you try to keep? Well, what was going on in Malachi's day is that these people had a tough go of it after the exile. And when they finally pounded out a living, they didn't want to see it go away. So they had a keeping problem. Now, the thing they were keeping back here in our text was the tithe. And it wasn't that they were keeping back the whole tithe. Because we see in verse number 10, look at the text, verse number 10, it says, bring the full tithe. So it's, it's indicating that they were bringing something, just not everything that they were supposed to. You can imagine their Scroogeish hearts, 
pinching out two pence as a public gesture, but nothing more. It's like, it's like when you go to Walmart at this season. You're, you're with friends. You go to enter those sliding glass doors, but there's a man off to the side, and he's ringing a bell that you can't ignore. There's a red pot and the Salvation Army sign, and you're with your friends. You try not to look, keep the conversation going, but they stop the conversation and look over, and that's when you feel like you're on the spot. Maybe I should give something. And so you open your wallet. You fold through and find the smallest dollar cash. You crumble it up so it can clearly be seen as cash, but the amount can't be known, and you go over there with great poise, you drop it in. You gave something. Everyone saw it but you gave as little as possible and you didn't want to do it. Well, these Israelites had a similar thing going on. They weren't following the instructions of the Mosaic law. They were giving something for show, but they weren't giving what was commanded in the law. They weren't abiding by the statutes of the Lord in terms of offerings. And so their giving was inadequate. It was so inadequate, it's actually called robbing God in this text. Did you catch that? Look, look at verse number seven for a moment. Look at chapter three, verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. What statutes is he talking about? Well, look at verse number eight. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he answers, he says, in your tithes and contributions. You see, God had given specific instructions about tithing in the Old Testament. And while there were free will offerings, uh, gifts you could voluntarily give, the tithe was actually mandatory under the Old Covenant. Let me explain the tithing system in Israel because I think people often equate tithe with what percent? Ten. People often equate tithe with 10% because that is the basic meaning of the word. But have you really folded through all the pages of the Mosaic Covenant? Some of us, I just want to pause because some of us are shocked by that 10%. Ouch, I mean, I already do my 15.3 FICA and all that other stuff. I mean, another 10? Well, I've got some bad news for you. Because 10 was kind of the bottom line. Let me explain what I mean. In the law of Israel, they had to bring what was called the priest's due, which was somewhere between 2 and 10%. Then they had to bring the basic tithe. That was 10%. Then they had to pay a second tithe, which was another 10%, which was money that was supposed to be spent in Jerusalem when you went on pilgrimage feasts. So it was kind of like feast money, but it had to be spent in Jerusalem. And if you couldn't make it to the feast, guess what? You still had to send the money. So you had that. Every third and fifth year in a seven-year cycle, there was a third tithe which went to the poor. That's how they took care of the poor in their nation. Now, this didn't include the offerings, and so think about the cost of animals purchased at festivals. Think about the extra money that was paid for sin and trespass offerings. And then 
By the way, remember the Sabbath year. That's where you deferred your income for that year. That was the Sabbath year. And then remember the Jubilee, every 49 years you also deferred your income. They had to leave the corners of their fields for the poor. They gave to charity, care for the widow, orphan, and stranger. And on top of all that, you could offer free will thank offerings. Some of you are like, I'm free willed out. (laughs) There ain't no free will left. When Malachi talks about the full tithe in verse 10, I think it's important for us to know it's probably more like 22 to 40%. Now, some of you might think that this was the initial invention of a money-hungry televangelist or some religious shyster who wrote this down, but that's not the case. These offerings were both for the religious and, listen, and social structures in Israel. So do you catch that? It's not the priests who are making all of this money. Yes, it supported the priests and the Levites, Because remember, when they entered the land, the Levites got no land. They received no inheritance except a few cities of refuge. They weren't able to farm. They were going to be provided for by the other tribes. So it supported temple upkeep. I mean, how did they keep the lights on? You're like, wait a minute. (laughs) They had to buy oil. (laughs) Temple upkeep pay the priests and Levites, fund the temple musicians and singers, take care of worship celebrations that happened in the community, and oh, by the way, care for the poor and needy. I think sometimes people forget that part. The tithes were significant in Israel under the old covenant because that's how God planned to care for the poor and needy. No welfare, no social security. The care was meted out through the temple. Now, what we have here, sadly, in Malachi's day, is that the Israelites were viewing their resources the wrong way. You see, they saw themselves as owners instead of stewards. And I wonder if some of us feel the same way about our resources. We feel a little bit more like owners instead of stewards. Well, these Israelites in Malachi's day were keeping back most of the offering and they were pocketing it for themselves. They refused to bring the full tithe. And what we discover is that this keeping problem that was occurring in Israel had some serious consequences. Look at verse number nine. See what the consequences were. It says here, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, in the Hebrew, it's interesting. The word arrangement brings emphasis to the point that this was really robbing God. This is how it would read more literally in the Hebrew. You are cursed for the curse. For me, you are robbing. You're robbing me, the Lord says. The whole nation of you are doing this. Now, I'm not sure how this curse played out exactly, but we do get a few indications. Like in verse number 11, it seems that there was a devourer, it says. the, The word literally means an eater, probably referring to locusts or some sort of a pest that was eating their crops. There was something going on in the vineyards where they were dropping their grapes early, maybe some sort of blight in the vineyards as part of this curse. Perhaps this curse was something like what Haggai talks about in Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Haggai says, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there... There's never enough. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. These people were cursed with a curse because they were robbing the Lord. It's almost as if God wants to explain to them, you're keeping back from me because you claim you don't have enough. But the fact is, you don't have enough because you've been keeping back from me. That's what he's trying to explain here. Friends, this keeping problem isn't unique to Malachi's day. Do you realize that the average giving by adults who attend U.S. Protestant churches is about $17 per week? Actually, 37% of regular church attending evangelicals aren't giving $17. 37% aren't giving at all. Now, some might protest, Lucas, we're dealing with inflation. Have you seen the gas prices? Look at the... Uh, look, look at the rates for mortgages, all, all of these things. But do you realize that studies show, they, they did a study about people in the Great Depression. I mean, talk about bad. Christians in the Great Depression gave an average of 3.3% of their income to the church. Today, it's down to 2.5. We like to think if we just made a little bit more, then we'd start giving. But in reality, do you realize Studies have shown that people who make a salary of less than 20000 a year are eight times more likely to give than those who make 75000 a year. I, mean, I just share that, not to like put this heavy weight of guilt, but actually just to show you that the sad state of the church today mirrors quite a bit the sad state of Israel in Malachi's day. This keeping problem wasn't just a problem Back then, even here in the U.S. among Christians, we have a keeping problem. So here's what happens next in our text. God makes a giving challenge. That's what he does in verses 7 and 10. Now, I realize we're in this season of the year where there are all kinds of charitable organizations and nonprofits that are reaching out for donations Across the room, how many of you have gotten an email requesting a donation? Go ahead, just raise your hand. Okay. We have Giving Tuesday. We have end-of-the-year contributions. We have alumni association asks. We have matching gift fundraisers. And there are all kinds of these opportunities hitting us at this time of year. But I think what's interesting in this text is that God himself makes a giving challenge. This is what he says in verse 7. Take a look at the text, second half of the verse. Look at the second half of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And it's almost like, like God's like, thanks for asking. Look at verse number 10. How shall we return? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, I think it's important to look at this giving challenge that's laid out here. At the root level, 
before we worry about the fruit level. In other words, before we jump to money, why don't we pause to look at our hearts? Because I think that's precisely what God does in this text. Notice the contrast that is initially presented in our passage. Did you catch this in the opening verse? Look at verse number six again and see if you can see the contrast between God and these people. Verse number six, for I, the Lord, do not change. I mean, for any of the theologians in the house, you think about the immutability of God. He doesn't change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And I think that's worth rejoicing over. Think about it. He's reliable. He's consistent. He's unfailing. He's promise-keeping. He's gracious. He's generous all the time. I, the Lord, don't change. I mean, you think about his heart of love towards you, it doesn't change. You think about his generosity towards you, it doesn't change. You think about his grace towards you, it doesn't change. He always has been. He always will be. And he goes on in verse number six and he says, and that's why you're not wiped out. I think that's fascinating. It is the immutability of God. It is the fact that he doesn't change, that we're not just thrown in the trash can. It's because he is consistently gracious and good. Because in contrast to that, we are in a long line of lawbreakers and greedy cheats. That's what verse seven is saying. Look at verse number seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. This generational problem over and over and over again. Look back at verse number six. Do you see how the people are referred to there? Did anybody catch that? You're the children of, say it. Jacob in verse 6. That's not accidental, by the way. Children of Jacob. Some of you have like warm feelings. Oh, children of Jacob. Oh, I like that. No, you don't. The word Jacob means grasper, supplanter. He's best known as a cheat. Remember? He cheated his own brother out of his birthright. What is this contrast here? God is immutable. He's always gracious and generous. But you, you guys are children of Jacob. You're graspers, supplanters, and cheats. And there's been generation after generation after generation of this. These Israelites, now we're trying to cheat God out of what properly belonged. So that's why in this text, he calls for a deep change. I mean, when he deals with a giving challenge in this text, calls them to give, he starts with the heart. That's where he starts. That's why verse 7 says, return to me and I will return to you. He doesn't say, open your wallet. That's not what he says first. He says, give me your heart. That's what he says first. If you're here this morning and this whole conversation about tithing feels bothersome, you're like, here we go again, a religious guy asking for money. I want you to know, I'm not asking for a donation. I'm inviting you to invest in what you really love. 
Remember, friends, your treasure always follows your heart. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Give God your heart and the other stuff will follow. There's a connection, my friends, between our hearts and our hands. Think about it in Israel's context. The tithe represented a, a percentage of profit that was supposed to be given back to the Lord. And ordinarily, I think this is significant because though we talk in terms of money, and they did have coinage back then, primarily the tithe was not meted out in coins. It was usually meted out in goods. In other words, grain, wine, oil, livestock, other agricultural products. So for instance, if you harvested 10 bushels of grain, then the tithe, the simple tithe, would be give one bushel to the temple. That would have been a tithe. But you have to realize there was no temple IRS back then. The priests had no ability to go audit the harvests of all of these worshipers or go out to the fields and count all the herds and say, yes, now I know that you've done this. No, I think the tithe was the perfect test to expose one's true heart. And that is because you could be faithful in your giving or selfish in your stinginess and no one knows except you and God. Listen, there was no tithing settlement meetings back then. You're you're not gonna meet with a church leader and affirm I've done the full tithe this year. There wasn't happening. It was between you and God. And that's why I think the way he approaches this is so beautiful because really giving is a matter of the heart. We give to what we love. It displays our loves. It exposes our loyalties. It expresses, think about this, giving expresses our trust in God. Now, there is some discontinuity between Old Testament tithing and New Testament giving. But this principle of the heart transcends them both. We see it come to bear in the churches of Macedonia in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, Paul writes, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So it's like joy and poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I love that phrase. Joy and poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. So again, it wasn't by the law. It was of their hearts. He goes, he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. How does it work? Well, giving is a reflection of the heart. And what he really wants is to you, for you to give yourself first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to these other things. Friends, this whole giving challenge that God puts out in this text is not meant to make God rich. He doesn't need any of it. It's meant to call our hearts 
back to trusting him. And that's why you see in verse 7, return to me. And why you see in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. He wants us to give regularly, proportionally, willingly, generously, from a heart that unreservedly trusts God. That's what he wants. So folks, in general, here in the U.S., even among Christians, we have a keeping problem. We tend to acquire and accumulate and hoard. And so, number two, God makes a giving challenge. And he calls us to sacrificially give as an expression of faith towards him. He calls us to soft hearts and open hands. Now, I know that's not easy, but I love how the text goes on and says this. If we trust God and give, here's number three. There will be a blessing that's promised. And you see this in verses 10 through 12. Look at the blessing that's promised there. Verse 10, second half of the verse. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Just reflect on those words for a, for a second. Put God to the test. And trust him. Give him your heart. And see if he won't open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It's almost as if God is saying, act on my promises. Prove them to be true. Put me to the test. See if what I'm saying comes to pass. Try it. Test it. This last week, I was test driving a used car. My Suburban is now 21 years old, 200,000 miles, and the duct tape on the seats is starting to peel back a little bit. I'm like, it might be time to look. So I'm test driving this car, and I took my 12-year-old daughter with me. Let me tell you something. She was putting it to the test. I mean, have you had this experience? I just wanted to drive the car, but she's hitting this button, pulling that lever, moving the visor, adjusting the seat, messing with the Bluetooth. I mean, just stop. <laughs> Let me drive. I mean, she was putting it to the test. Do you know that's what God welcomes you to do? Put me to the test. Try it out. My friends, God is saying here, if you put me to the test, I will take care of you. The Lord doesn't want you to give so that you'll be left in poverty. He wants to bless and prosper you. When you turn your heart to the Lord in faith, there is favor you can count on. Now, I struggled with these statements because I'm like, boy, do I sound like Creflo Dollar? Don't want to do that. Health and wealth garbage. Don't want a Joel Osteen right now with some sort of prosperity gospel. Don't want that. But I, I do want you, listen, this is what's so significant. I do want you to view God as a good father. I mean, I think sometimes our giving problem is because we really don't view God as a good father. Like, do you think the good father really wants to just squish you? Deprive you? Hold back from you? No, my friend, listen to his voice. I'll open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Can you hear his heart in that? The imagery of the windows of heaven there uh, in our text, 
It harkens back to the flood. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, the same imagery is used. The windows of heaven were opened and rain fell. So maybe I could put it this way. Like the pouring out of water in the Noahic flood, so God wishes to pour out his blessings on those who trust him. He says, turn to me in faith and I'll unleash my favor without reserve until there is no need left. Now, notice it says no need. I think that's where some of the false teaching comes in. They're like, give $19.95 today and you'll have no want. Everything you desire in all of your life, your dreams will come true. That's not what God is saying. He's saying until there is no more need. I want to encourage you to just be like sheep who trust the good shepherd. Where he says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You shall not want. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 7, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So I was thinking about this Christmas season of giving. And any of, your, any of you parents in the room with young children, you know how this goes. The kids uh, at first just like to receive. So if you've got little ones, I mean, actually when they're small, they just want a big box to play in. They don't even care what's in the box, they just want the box. So when they're little, they just want to receive. And then your kids get a little bit older and they discover it would be really nice to give. Like they actually want to participate in the giving. The only problem is they don't have any money. They want to bring gifts to the Christmas tree to give to the family, but they don't have any way of purchasing them. Any of you families in that stage, just raise your hand. I just want to see it. Any of you? A few of you. They, the kids want to give gifts. They don't have any money. So what do you do? You give them money. <laughs> you give them money so that they can experience the joy of giving. And I think that's what God does for us. He's not selfish or greedy. He's not growling from heaven, give me your stuff, you filthy animals. No, that's not what he's doing. He's like a loving father who wants us to experience the joy of giving. And so he gives to us so that we can give. Friends, don't pocket what you received. Don't hoard what he's blessed you with. Instead, use it for giving and trust God that he will take care of your needs later on. He's good like that. He takes care of his kids. Now, the text says in verses 11 and 12 that if you trust God enough to give, he'll bless us. But he does it in evident ways in verses 11 and 12. Notice the text. It says this. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then look at the next, next part. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I think that God's motive here behind this is that we would experience the joy of giving and that others would see that he is a good God. That, notice it says here, they would become the land of delight. It's almost like that you would become a delightful garden. 
Have you seen those in the spring? One of my favorite things at our home, we live right around the corner here. So we're right here in the city. Uh, we have some box gardens that my father-in-law uh, makes them fruitful. <laughs> I don't do any work in them. He does all the work and I get all the benefits. I like that arrangement. Um, so it's like fresh cucumbers, just pull them right out of the box, or these, these beans that grow on the trellis, just pull them right off and eat them through the summer. I mean, it's, it's really fun for me to do this. But I love seeing those boxes filled with all of these vegetables. I mean, they're just amazing here in the city. And we'll see people walk by our fence and they will look at those gardens and appreciate them. I mean, they're like amazed. Here in the middle of the city, you've got these great crops growing right here. Maybe you could picture it like this. Some of you are going to drive around in the next two weeks and find that house. You know, that house where that guy has spent thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> on these crazy lights and animals and things like that. I mean, insane. And you're going to be like in this long line of cars that get a chance to drive by that house and go, wow. <laughs> So like people in the city who see a garden or like spectators during Christmas season who drive by a decorated house, the glory of the garden points to the gardener and the beauty of the decoration points to the decorator. And so in all of this, God wishes to bless his people such that they would be, it says in the text, a land of delight. But I think it's ultimately so that it would point to the delightful one. Now in all this talk about giving, I think it's important to know that God has practiced what he preached. He didn't just call others to sacrificially give. He sacrificially gave more than we can imagine. And I was just reflecting on that, that, little, that little phrase that says, he opened the windows of heaven have you thought about how he's done that? He opened the windows of heaven and he poured down a blessing that would remove all need. He did it in his son, Jesus. And we stand here at this season as people who have received the greatest gift of all. God loved the world so much that he did what? He gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. My friends, he's the great giver, and he calls us to follow his lead. Let's pray together. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, take a few moments of silence to reflect on the word, and then respond to it. Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer. Let the Lord open your heart and your hands this season as we reflect on how he did that for us. Friends, at the end of the day, it's not about money. God doesn't want your stuff, he wants you. He already gave. Will you follow his lead? He calls us to give proportionally, willingly, generously. 
because it's an expression of our trust in him. Friend, this morning, do you struggle with a keeping problem? Is God convicting you this morning about generosity? Talk to him. Ask him to soften your heart. Ask him to open your hands so that you could be a giver like him. Perhaps you're here this morning and giving to the Lord and his work has never been a part of your life. The Lord invites you to put him to the test. Step out in faith and experience his favor. That's not saying you're going to be a millionaire, but it is saying that if you trust God, he will take care of you. He'll bless you with an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven. Give him your heart this Christmas. Let everything else follow. Across the room, maybe just pray to God your response to this message this morning. Lord, this is what I've learned. Lord, this is what I believe you want me to do. Help me. Lord, you're the great giver. Teach us to be generous this season. We want to give you our hearts first and foremost. And let everything else follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.